Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, hello. It's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Though I guess I should amend that and include sports, uh, because that <laughs> is what this episode is going to center on, because, oh my goodness, there's so many cool things to talk about. Uh, but first, mm-hmm. around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klopik. Bear down, Chicago Bears. <laughs> oh boy! Don't jinx it. Four last year. <laughs> Don't do not at the at Bob, the moment you can't of our jinx triumph. The Chicago Bears. Yeah, if they end up true. sucking, that's just fate. <laughs> you can't jinx a team that had Cody Parkey like uh-huh. end of the season and then do a victory lap on Good Morning America. Uh, and we also have Waypoint Editor in Chief Austin Walker. Fly, Eagles, fly <laughs> on the road to victory. Hey, Austin. Uh, hey, hey, Austin. What's up? Yeah. Fuck off. Uh huh. Do you want to say that? Do you want to say that a second time? Because I know everything you do, you do twice. Dang. <laughs> uh, He's gonna be saying that every time Jordan Howard uh, uh-huh. has a has a great run in a, in a system that's awfully similar to Matt Nagy's. God. Uh, how's it going? Well, it's going pretty well. I've been really basking in the glow uh, of <laughs> the of, of the fires, uh, the the tire fire that is unfolding in Green Bay right now. Uh, I've been very much just sort of, uh, you know, flopped on my side, sunning myself, uh, you know, in that in that heat. Uh, this this last week, uh, Bleacher Report ported, uh, published a. Long, and I will admit this up front, an extremely gossipy feature. Oh, it's, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. Called What Happened in Green Bay. And its main focus is trying to explain, first of all, why Mike McCarthy, the Packers head coach until the season, uh, was was fired, why he had a falling out with his star quarterback and probably a generational talent, uh, Aaron Rodgers. And... uh what other factors might have driven that, but it really just turns into an airing of every single grievance. Everyone who's played green Bay in the last 10 years has had. <laughs> I mean, like one of the things I like to put it in context, especially for folks that aren't necessarily, you know, outside the sphere of Rob and I always living under the thumb of Aaron Rodgers. Mm. Um, uh, as, as good as a team as, as Chicago could ever put together, you always felt that well, at some point he's just going to take control and beat you because he is that good. He is right. is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Um, but like I spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. I have a lot of friends in Wisconsin. I have a lot of like close family and friends that are, are Packers 
fans. And, you know, one of the things that's always haunted them is like some of them are at least smart enough to realize how good they have it, um, even in their in their worst seasons. And that's going to end eventually because because, you know, time keeps ticking. And at some point you're going to have a mediocre team for a while until things hopefully align again. And you look at something like the New England Patriots, and as much as I loathe them, and we've talked about this before, I also have like a profound respect for their way to work the system. And that's a huge amount of how they've been able to uh, be so successful. It's that knowing where the margins where you can increase your chance of success, plus having a generational talent, like there's really no excuse for the Green Bay Packers, as this piece like points out, to not have been not just they went to the playoffs every year for nearly a decade, but that they should have had like a whole handful of rings. And it should have been not just a dynasty over the NFC North, but like a dynasty over like this whole conference of the NFL. And it's like, now he's 35. He has had two years of like really, really difficult injuries where he just revealed partially as a response to this story that he was playing with a torn labium and like an MCL sprain. Basically something that like JJ Watt, who is one of the most uh, pronounced uh, defenders in the NFL, uh, he basically just said when he had a similar injury, yeah, my season's over. Aaron Rodgers suffered this halfway through the first game of the season last year and then just kept playing, um, partially because I think he knows his time is limited. His body uh, keeps giving out in various ways. And what th- all of this in the context of a, of a guy who doesn't know how much time he has left but realizes right. he doesn't have much time left, and then you just stack in all this other stuff. It's just a – a really fascinating personality portrait that like builds on what we talked about last week of like personalities, leadership, what is leadership? How do people figure out to be a leader? People who aren't born leaders, but are thrust into it. And like as gossipy as this piece is, it's actually like just a totally different way into that conversation we had last week. Yeah. I will say that like the, there is a degree to which it reads like a really, really long gossip column because it's built up uh, of quotes of people who played with with Rogers, uh, you know, and and uh, under under what's the coach's name again? Mike McCarthy. McCarthy. I kept wanting to say Mitchell, but that's not his name. Mike McCarthy, and being like, "Yeah, let me tell you about the time that this." Or like, "Hey, here is the you know here is a, an angle maybe you, you thought you knew the whole of this story, but actually, uh, but at the same time, there is something really." <laughs> It is a gossip. It is gossipy, but it, it, when that gossip comes from the people who were working directly with these individuals, the result is that it ends up painting a sort of, or not even painting, but but stitching a quilt of all of these different stories that helps you get into your into the 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 space that these two people created through their ongoing terrible relationship, the ways in which they sniped at each other, the ways in which other players got caught up in between, and like. If you were playing for the Packers for the last 14 years, you had to navigate this shit. You didn't get to just show up and play good football, right? And obviously that's that's probably true for every team. You have to deal with personalities. You have to deal with the leadership. You have to deal with, with you know, uh, uh, character co- uh, conflicts and clashes. But there's a degree to which this ended up being I, – I, I could see past the gossipy nature of it. I could see past the sort of like – um, the feeling that I'm reading notes passed around the back of a classroom because what those notes are revealing is actually a broader picture of the. It's like, yeah, I don't want to be passed a, a note from a wide receiver, but I. But if you give me the uh, all of the notes passed between players for the course of 14 years, <laughs> yes, I'm very interested. It um, I I think one of the things that 
really strikes me here as well is so much of this seems driven by the dynamics of stardom. Again, following mm-hmm. off the conversation we, we had last week, um, it is a different thing to be a star athlete, to be the person who, you know, you want the play to be built around them in the final moments of the game. You want the ball in their hand. Uh, when, you know, when, when the chips are down, somebody needs to score. And it's interesting, you know, last week we were talking about a collegiate athlete who's still in a lot of ways developing as a person, as an athlete, you know, what, what Sabrina Ionescu is going to be as a basketball player is still unwritten. We have some indications, but there's also still so much that can change so many different ways that like her personality, it's, it's quirks, her desires can like manifest themselves. Rogers is sort of at this maybe halfway point, maybe closer to twilight, like who knows, but it's this weird – there's a couple dynamics here that I think are really interesting. One is this notion that a lot of this dysfunction and frustration seems to be built around this idea that the Packers should have done more. And I get it. Mm-hmm. Like if you looked at those early years with Rodgers at Green Bay, it looked like you were going – you were seeing a, a potential like Patriots-type dynasty taking shape. Here's the thing. There's only been one Patriots-type dynasty in the history of the NFL. Like, it is a weird freaking thing that has happened in the NFL in the last 20 years. Which will never happen again. Almost certainly not. And so it's this weird, like, distorting lens. And I think we first saw it with, like, Peyton Manning a little bit. This idea that whatever you could say about him as a quarterback, he wasn't amassing the championships that Tom Brady did. That And you could argue about, like, what contracts did they choose to take. Uh, Rodgers certainly went the Manning route this year by signing, like... Who's the... Uh, this is before all of our time, but, like, isn't, like, Dan Marino often looked at as, like, he never got a Super Bowl, right? Yeah. But he was a, obviously, a, you know, an extreme Hall of Fame generational talent, but someone that never quite... Right, it's nine, like the whole argument of like you know the, the Michael Jordan, uh, LeBron James, like how much do the rings matter when you're right. ta- speaking to like the skill of the player, pure talent, uh, pure talent. When it you know you're missing the forest of the trees on how much of it is a team sport and weird things like you know how much money you can spend to like build a roster. You also just cannot like I, I'm not. I probably shouldn't even weigh in here because my degree of expertise on football and basketball is like, yeah, I played them when I was much younger, you know, um, in school. But that's not the same thing. Uh, and uh, but like the difference from the the apparent difference for me between basketball and football is such that you can a Le- LeBron can do more than Dan Marino ever could by himself on the court than than Dan Marino could do on the field. Patrick yeah. seems to have spilled coffee. Is my is my suspicion, and had to have escaped. Hey, Patrick, how you doing, buddy? Yo, there was a bug. I didn't. I was trying to just That's what it act was. like the podcast yes. was just. Fine. Uh, yeah, because it I looked know. to me like you were trying to set your laptop free. Like you <laughs> ran with yeah. a laptop open <laughs> to the notebook through the patio it's door. My notebook. Oh, we get. Um, I forget what they're. Uh, stink bugs, uh, oh. which are like really common in the Midwest. They tend to hide out in in your house when it's cold and then they mm. um, reemerge when it gets warmer um and so they just they're harmless but they crawl over your house and like this one just like usually find them dead 
but this one was alive, and I just wanted to set him free. And so I picked him up on Good my job. notebook, tried to be discreet, but didn't, didn't know how to quite explain. And I now, in retrospect, realize me standing up and then just, like, fluttering. <laughs> it looked like you wanted to set your, like, moleskin free. Uh-huh. Like, just fly freely. No. I Like, you know, we've we've had a good run, but it is you have outgrown me. Uh-huh. Uh, no, but I think this is the weird thing about, like, Rodgers emerges in an NFL that is already starting to be built around this whole, like, Brady versus Manning dichotomy. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Which type are you? But again, Brady is singular. It does like it hasn't been replicated. If you look at other really successful quarterbacks, to your point, Austin, like most of these guys are lucky to get a Super Bowl, much less two. And prior to the Patriots, like three was kind of right. like the, as wild as I, you got. I grew up. So the thing that's interesting here for me when I was reading this is y'all are Bears fans who who have a long running rivalry with the Packers. For me, the equivalent is the was the Dallas Cowboys, right? Was the the '90s Dallas Cowboys, Detroit Aikman Dallas Cowboys, and Aikman gets three, right? Aikman Aikman wins. Yes. I don't think it was a. It may have been a three peat. If it wasn't a three peat, it was damn near close, right? The Cowboys were. The Cowboys were the team that was so good that everyone else in the NFC East thought they were the rivals of the Cowboys. Do you know what I mean? Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> the Giants. Like, yeah, of course, the Giants and Eagles had, like, a friendly rivalry. But when it came down to it, the team that we hated and that all of the teams in the NFC East hated was the Cowboys. And so all the stuff that you talk about with, like, Rodgers is the one who's, like, ruined your season here or there or, like, has been the, – the, the Packers have stopped the run. Like, that – Or, like, very specifically, I'll point you to a moment from a couple of years yeah. back – when it was the John Fox uh, Bears, it was an awful season. I think we only maybe won three games, but it was a uh, a a game at Lambeau Field in which they were retiring Brett Favre's jersey. Right. So it was like a big night where like Brett Favre was coming back. He was separated from the Packers organization because he he left messily in the transition with Rodgers. He went to the Minnesota Vikings and like thrived there for a little while. Yeah. And he was coming back. They were retiring his jersey. The Bears beat the shit out of the Packers in a season in which there was very little for the Bears to cheer about. And I was be- I was so drunk at Thanksgiving, screaming my like it felt so good to to not sock them well, in the mouth. Well, you wake up the next morning and go, Yeah, but like we're not going to the playoffs or maybe even gonna win five games. So <laughs> but right, I'll take this. Right. You'll take this this is a this is a moral victory. Well, like the funny thing there is when I was reading this, here was the other comparison that I kept coming back to was like Oh wow, yeah, you have like a super good uh quarterback who's won one uh one Super Bowl and has like almost built a dynasty and the numbers when you think about that quarterback are like not as uh, or are better than you than than the amount of rings he has. Who's that sound like to me? Oh, Brett Favre, right? Like the Packers are the Packers. Uh, for me, looking yeah. from the outside in, these are the Packers. Yes, they're an incredible team that can ruin someone else's season, and they can go on a good run, but they don't win it. That is the Packers I've always known, and it's so <laughs> funny to see this like article again and again be like, this could have been the dynasty. Because, yeah, motherfucker, everybody thinks they're, that the team could be the dynasty. Like The parts are often all there. Well, I think the thing the thing I will say to that is if you like this is this is what Pat fans saw, and I think this is what a lot of us saw in the NFC North. Favre was a great quarterback of a certain type, but mm-hmm. like Rodgers in his prime had this incredible efficiency and right. uh, ability to make big plays without making the big mistakes. Like Favre The two minute drill. He's the yeah. king yeah, yeah, yeah. of the two minute drill, in which like you net there are other teams where yeah. 
give him 45 seconds, like, yeah, dare you to go down the field and, like, yeah. go get a touchdown. Like, in every game where that's ever happened, even if the Bears are not involved, it's like, don't give it to him. Do not mm-hmm. give him 45 seconds. He will go down the field and he will tear you to shreds because he is just – and he won't make a mistake. He's not going to throw the interception. He's going to find the we'll guy. We'll come to that in a second. Um but yeah, so when he shows up and takes over after Favre, there's this weird thing where if you watched Favre, and Favre had some good years toward the end of his run. He had some, some good year in, in Minnesota after he left uh, Green Bay. And he still showed flashes of like greatness as it appeared with Brett Favre. Rodgers was something different. Rodgers, you looked at it and you were like, you're like this, is, this is actually a categorically better uh, quarterback than Brett Favre. We have the crucial piece that's going to guarantee, uh, you know, a, a really successful era here. Um, but the, I think that sort of begins distorting things right from the start, because I think it does set impossible expectations. Postseasons are best mm-hmm. of one. Uh, like it's just, it's a fluky yeah. game. It is hard. Like the Patriots thing is so weird because like, if you just think about how football postseasons are structured, this isn't supposed to happen. So let's just look at what happened with the Packers uh, a little bit. And I think this is something that the piece lays out pretty well at the start. Um, in the beginning, Rodgers came into a team that had a lot of talent across the board. Uh, he was, you know, he was on a rookie contract. Uh, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of depth to that offense. There's a lot of people who can make big plays off of, uh, you know, simple designs. Out of right. nothing, like you had a lot of wide receivers that could go one on one and mm-hmm. get separation. And yeah, like I think as you're alluding to, the the arc is like what happens when you start losing those players who can do things on their own. And. I think the other thing that's really interesting here is, and I thought this is a really interesting comparison made in this piece. Think of Aaron Rodgers as an AI. Oh, like it's yes. machine yeah. learning. I, you, I pulled that keep, quote out. Yeah. Yeah. Could you read it? Yeah, totally. Um, it says, uh, where did I, I put it in here, didn't I? Yes, there it is. There it is. Uh, think of, let me just make sure there's nothing else set up here. Yeah, okay. Think of mankind's never-ending debate over artificial intelligence, Grant says. Uh, when you, quote, when you put a quarterback in a position and you talk about how cerebral he is and you give him flexibility to make some changes, guess what? You develop AI because it has the capacity to run without you. And then when it runs without you, it's like, wait a minute. But in the same breath, it's not uh, – if you're not actually able to stay ahead of it, it's going to outthink you and it's going to say me making the decision is the better decision. And so Grant adds, you live and die by his greatness. Uh, yeah, I, I love I, – I, I, I both love this analogy and also think of other ways that you can apply it, right? Because the, the premise is – I guess to set this up is that in football, uh, there's a lot of ways you can do this. But by and large, coaches call plays. The quarterback, right? I think we, we may have had someone else on the podcast once you didn't know this part. Quarterbacks have headphones in their in their uh, helmets. They hear a play call from the sidelines. They execute that play. Sometimes you have a quarterback who's really good at play calling and who has who's given the autonomy to make certain calls themselves. Uh, and that can be make or break. Sometimes that can be the thing that wins you the game. The quarterback has that on-field experience and has that that sense of how the defense is about to react, and so they make a, a they either you know call an audible at the at the line or they they call play in the huddle that that makes things go a different way. Um, and when and I, I like this analogy of like when you give one person that authority and you teach them that play calling mechanism, 
it's possible that, that then you end up splitting the authority between the two places. And the reason I go like there's these can kind of this can kind of go two ways is the other way around it is coaches are the AI. Coaches are your coaches are ask Madden, right? You go like, I don't know what the fuck I'm gonna do, ask Madden. Uh, and your coach says, Oh, do this thing. And you go, All right, sure. And then you go, but then but at that point it's like the GPS, right? You go like, okay, but like, do I understand why this play works? And great teams don't just listen to GPSs. They understand how the plays they're play, what plays they're doing, interact with the defenses. Uh, how they understand where to go by themselves, even if the coach is the one playing, calling the play. If that makes sense. And this is where it gets really interesting. This idea that when it starts, Rogers and McCarthy never got along. This is the other thread of this that emerges that right. Rogers is apparently like. And this seems pretty well verified by a lot of different things. But Rogers is a guy who carries a lot of grudges. Yeah, um, like I'm afraid he's star gonna start. Do. He's gonna come for us next. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a lot of star athletes do, right? Like it's it's a form of fuel. You know, you just never let shit go, and that can be a thing that drives you. It can also be poisonous, but whatever. It you know it it, it is it sometimes is part of the makeup of a star athlete. But he doesn't really like McCarthy. But McCarthy has a simple, effective system, and then he has some really talented players that can make simple plays way more explosive than they have any business being. And then within that system, occasionally, Rodgers has a lot of freedom to just basically walk to the line and completely revise a play or create a new one. Um, and as long as that equilibrium was in place and you had the the AI that was Rodgers occasionally supersede uh, the the human operator that was McCarthy and say, no, I see like I see what is actually happening here. I'm going to make a judgment on the field because it is superior to yours. And that largely worked uh, because Roger's instincts are incredible. And he does have just an uncanny uh, you know sense for the game, vision for the game. Uh, but then what begins to happen, and this is sort of the one of the core thrusts of the the, the article, um, is that Green Bay just like teams deplete. And I, I think a flaw with this article is they don't introduce the, the Packers GM, Ted Thompson, until yeah. pretty late. Like when you say, ah, talent drains out of Green Bay, and that was driving a problem between uh, Rodgers and McCarthy, that is not a problem that either of those men can actually fix. Like that is. Right. It's also ugh, Green Bay is such a. We so uh, we traditionally think of uh, any team as being having an owner that like paid a bunch of money to own this team. Like the Packers don't have a traditional operating power structure. They do now, but like for a number of years, there wasn't a clear power structure because they are like, I mean, it's the way the Packers organization pitches is like the fans own the team, which is like not the way it actually yeah. works where you can like buy shares into the Packers. Um, but I, I forget the specifics of how the organization works, but it's only been in like the last five years that like there's been a clear delineation of power. And because they are like not a, not a traditionally owned team, there hasn't been a clear structure for these things to – for like someone to step in and say, hey, actually we should have fired this coach five years ago and started over and figured it out. There's like a really strange organization relative to other that, – that, not to say that lots of other teams that have traditional power structures don't don't allow things to fester. That is, that is absolutely true. But they are uh, – the Packers as an organization is like very unique in like the world of sports. Yeah, and, and so as that organization depletes and those simple plays, McCarthy's system gets less effective, um, 
Then people start reconsidering how good is McCarthy. He does some things that make it very easy. He's kind of a detached leader. Uh, and it, this is another interesting thing in this piece. The argument is neither Rogers nor McCarthy is really a leader, right? That like right. they are they are leaders in the sense that a lot of things hinge on them during the game. But in terms of day to day, like making sure this huge, complicated organization is full of people like sharing a vision and pushing in the same direction. What's really interesting is they end up citing like a lot of like linemen and backs and such. Basically, yeah. like this is like the Packers, if they were an army, and this is the analogy I put in my notes, the Packers, if they're an army, had an incredible uh, like non-commissioned officer corps, right? Like they had a lot of great sergeants. The officers at the top like had some flashes of brilliance, but in terms of that day-to-day, like, you know, follow through, uh, were a little iffy. McCarthy, it sounds like in particular. So as all that begins to happen, uh, the cracks start showing and Roger starts trusting the system less and less and just begins right. to become like a rogue AI. And this is the part of the vision I well, love. Like, and that's, yes. That's also the thing that I love about it is just like, this is the problem with thinking about leadership as AI, right? You don't just need your kind of like mid-tier leaders. You know, uh, what you imagine is you have a great linebacker who is sort of like a leader for the defense. You have maybe a running back or a wide receiver who can kind of keep morale up. But in terms of like big picture decision making, that's going to come from people who are specific in specific leadership positions and who at least one of them needs to be more than just a play caller or someone who knows how the game works, has to be a leader who takes a strategy, communicates it to the team, gets them motivated, and convinces them that like this is the this is like the right play to call in this moment, and then picks them up when when things go bad. And if your quarterback is just a rogue AI who is like, I'm gonna run things my way, I'm an AI and I know how to throw the football really well, and I am gonna continue to be a star athlete, like that's not going to bring the team any closer together. And then seeing the coach just like bicker with this dude or almost come to blows in some some instances, that is also not going to unify that team and like shore up the problems that are like the, the cracks. You need someone to actually be doing the reproductive work of keeping the team going. And when that important role of leadership of making sure like visions are widely held and people like believe in where things are, when that role is being filled by people further down the chain of command, yeah, that is invisible leadership. And those people are not actually empowered or to paid. make any like, right. And so that's the weird thing is you can look at, it's interesting. So they cite uh, like Thomas Kuhn here, who is this sort of very traditional like run between the tackles uh, back in Green Bay and they kept him around for years after, as a back, his performance started to nosedive. And there's a lot of frustration there with, like, why are we hanging on to Kuhn? Like, this is kind of symbolic of, like, the weirdness He was weirdness a fan of, favorite. Like, he was a fullback, right? He was, like, traditionally, yeah. like... He certainly ran like one. At the, yeah. Yeah, you always hear Kuhn after, yeah. like, he'd run in some touchdown at, like, the two-yard line. But he's cited as one of those guys who was also kind of a backbone of the team. And so that's a weird thing where you had now... what he, His actual job is to pick up yardage running between the tackles, right? Or mm-hmm. like do pass protection. That is what he is there to do. As he becomes less capable of doing that, he starts becoming a liability on the field. But unfortunately, maybe your team actually needs him in the locker room to right. keep people like, to keep some of these situations from from sort of simmering over. And that doesn't that that doesn't work, right? You need an effective, you need an effective back in that position. The problem is, then you are also then you now have to confront the fact that like shit the people who are meant to lead this thing 
are not effectively doing it. They are not effectively building like trust and shared purpose, you know, down the ranks. And instead, it's just people who may not be that good at their actual job anymore, <laughs> right. uh, sort of, sort of, you know, patching up the uh, patching up the gaps, uh, which I think is there's that um, there's that amazing uh, bit in the piece where uh, you know they talk about and this isn't unique to Aaron Rodgers, but like uh, a lot of very uh, quarterbacks will like have like a certain rapport with like a particular receiver um, that like. Look, they're probably just going to throw it to that guy because he just trusts that he's going to uh, catch it. Um, and this has become increasingly the case where Rogers like grudges and favoritism yeah. like leads over into especially like the new talent, like bringing in younger players. They're going to work under him. And there's like the specific instance that is cited where um, as these cracks between Rogers and McCarthy were so deep, where the like like the wide receivers coach wants this the wide receiver to run the route a certain way, but the wide receiver who wants to gain trust with Rogers knows that Rogers wants him to run it a different way. And so that there'd be these situations where like the play gets called or in practice, and then he runs it the way he knows what Rogers wants it run. The wide receivers coach is like, what the, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this is not what the play is. And he's trying to figure out, well, where are my allegiance? What is the politics of this situation where it's like, whose side do I need to be gaining favoritism with in order to like advance in this organization, especially as you're one of the lower tier players who doesn't have the trust, the authority, the contractual power to sort of like exercise their will. And it's like, well, who do you, what faction do you align with? Because you're being pulled in all these different directions. Like that's like ultimately like in a gossipy piece, like, how players as individuals and personalities are pulled in different directions and the contradictions therein is what I find really fascinating because it's just something that goes beyond the X's and O's of like how football is run. But at the same time, it like forgets how much it it isn't just like calling up the good play. It is like clashes of personalities and egos and structure and power and hierarchy in a way that is invisible to most of us. Um, but pieces like this allow you to like suddenly look back and go, oh, uh, you know, like there's an example where during this past season, the, the Packers have this really good running back that seems like every time you fed him the ball, like he'd go and get seven yards. And like over and over, like McCarthy would be asked in, in press conferences, why don't you just give that guy the ball more? What he never said, or this piece alludes oh, to, right. is that at the line of play, like Aaron Rodgers was just audibling, uh, audibling uh, out of these run plays and throwing the ball. And it's like, that impacts the X's and O's of like what you're seeing on the field. But like you have to peel back all of these onions of like, well, McCarthy doesn't, cannot, will not, should not throw his quarterback under the bus publicly and say, well, actually, you know, I was calling plays differently. And he was, it's just, it's, it's other than the, the gospel part as a Bears fan makes me excited. But the X's and O's of the politics of the situation is also really fascinating. So there's something I want to lay out here real quickly. So for one thing, of uh, you know, Wisconsin sports reporters haven't been too blown away by this. Uh, a lot of the stuff is like stuff they've surmised, like mm-hmm. a lot of the actual, like when you get down to brass tacks, you know, oh, Green Bay got less talented and became a less <laughs> effective team. Like, shocker, we've all like charted that course for the last t- several years. Uh, there's this one writer uh, over, he writes, does a lot of uh, Wisconsin sports reporting, but he writes a lot for SB Nation's uh, Packers Vertical, um, Acme Packing Company. And, uh, so his name is Paul Noonan, and he wrote this piece last year before, like, I think everything really went to hell about Rogers preternaturally good numbers when it came to uh, 
interceptions. Basically, he didn't throw any. He was just this incredible. It was this, you know, unbelievable statistic that Aaron Rodgers was so incredibly like smart with the ball that he did not make the mistakes that even great mis- great quarterbacks. He had like make. the longest streak of like no interceptions yeah, in a game for the long for like in the last two years, something like that. Yeah, until last season when they played the Bears. Um, <laughs> but the argument that Noonan makes is that Rodgers was pursuing lack of interceptions to the expense of everything else. Like, if you are that risk-averse, you are also going to be passing up big plays. Yeah. If you're throwing the ball where the cornerback can't jump the route, are you also maybe putting it in a place where the receiver cannot actually get to the ball? Like, that's that's the trade-off. And so, like, Rodgers starts making throws where, like, is his pass accuracy off or is he just being way too freaking careful? And I thought it was a really interesting take on, uh, you know, how a statistic can mislead a player away from optimal play. But now if you think about that in light of him basically tanking to get McCarthy fired, like basically just, you know what, fuck you, I'm going to do whatever I want. Then it takes on a different cast, doesn't it? Because then what he's doing is he's creating like a paper trail for himself in the stats of the game that, hey, whatever is going wrong in Green Bay, it ain't me. I don't make mistakes. Not my fault. The results are shitty. And in the meantime, behind the scenes, like in places that like nobody can actually hear, he's basically changing the game plan at the line of scrimmage. And then McCarthy has to go like face the firing squad week after week to explain why is your office offense moribund? Why is none of you know why why aren't you calling the good plays? Uh, and instead, <laughs> Rogers keeps dropping back into into coverage with these sort of half ass scramble routes. And the answer is Rogers is boxing him in that way. And right. that I think is kind of the like when I think about those two things in relation to each other, that's what emerges as kind of the scarier portrait here. You got a guy who carries grudges, a guy who feels like he is the smartest, most capable person on the field in a lot of cases is right, but then also will like relentlessly, you know, like do underhanded, like shady shit uh, to sort of corner uh, his organization into doing what he wants. Um, yeah, it's and like that's th- going to be really tough next year. Well, like, and then this, this, the piece, you know, uh, there's a section in which they finally go like, all right. Actually, a lot of people blame this failure on Rodgers directly. He, you know, he's really sensitive to criticism in such a way that's like completely misses the fact that he is this golden child, right? That he is this like super well paid, uh, well regarded, automatic Hall of Famer. Uh, he it constantly just like undermines his teammates and refuses to lift them up. And then I think this is just like such an important quote from Finley, who was a, a tight end, uh, one of Roger's favorite tight ends to throw to, um, or was one of one of uh, uh, Roger's favorite tight ends to throw to. He says, um, uh, the moment Rodgers inked his new contract, one that could earn him up to $180 million, Finley knew, knew a storm was brewing because Finley, Rodgers' number one tight end for four and a half years, remembers the entitlement his QB had even as, as a first-year starter, quote, when he was broke as fuck, quote, <laughs> you gave a man $200 million. He's the GM. 
He's the organization. He's the quarterback. And he's the head coach. He has a sense of entitlement already. And then you give him $200 million. You make him one of the highest paid in history. It comes with the territory, man. I think Rodgers, man-to-man, needs to take a little more blame. And the thing that's interesting about that isn't just they gave him $200 million. It's that there's a way to get paid $200 million in America and for people to think you're not getting paid enough. And Rodgers isn't that person. Rodgers hasn't convinced the world that he's earned the the money that he's earned because he hasn't been that leader and because he hasn't found that same success. But like when even your own teammates are like, yeah, you're entitled, man. That's the 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 very clearest level of breakdown here because there's another verse, there's another story out there, there's another team out there rather. I'm sure that in our lifetimes has had as much talent and as little success, but because of the closeness of the teammates, because of the the you know the easy maybe there there's there's a clearer breakdown and like a good guy and a bad guy emerges in terms of what they believe, even if it's more complicated than that. You don't get this story because everyone is like, oh yeah, it was uh, it was this bad coach, or they go, oh yeah, it was. But this is such a mess because. Even the people involved were not invested in shaking out what those relationships were, you know? Manning's Colts, I think, fit right. that bill. Yes, right? totally. Like, that was a totally. team that just dominated in the regular season year after year, uh, put up, like, just absolutely wild numbers, and then underperformed. Because, again, postseasons are tough. And, uh, you know, Manning, you know, Manning did develop a re- reputation for fading down the stretch. Was that just? I don't know. But the point is, what you didn't hear was you you heard people talk about the cap space problems that Manning created for the teams he was a part of. Like Manning mm-hmm. very clearly was like, here's my market value. I'm getting all of it. You build the best team you can with the money that's left over uh, and I'll make it work. And that was the, that was kind of the wrap on it. But you didn't get stories like this where it was like, okay, yeah, like, you know, Manning is basically like, hollowing this team out from the inside Mm -hmm. because of what he's demanding and the way he behaves. And yeah, I think this is, this is, but also Manning, I don't think ever like (laughs) connived to have a coach fired out from under him, Um, which is, uh, which is pretty bold. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've ever seen a player get a coach fired uh, this way in the NFL uh, just by like calling audibles at the line and <laughs> leaving the coach to twist. Anyway, uh, I think it's, just, it's a fascinating story, and I think it uh, really dovetails in an interesting way with sort of these these themes we've been discussing of like star performers, star athletes, uh, and how that relates to what happens when you're in a team sport. Um, One final note, I just yeah. want to, because uh, we, uh, we brought this up last week when we, uh, uh, and we noted this with Kobe Bryant. We did not know this with Peyton Manning. Talking about athletes as a minefield because a lot of them have done a lot of shitty things. But like right. Peyton Manning was absolutely credibly accused of like sexual mm-hmm. assault and sexual harassment, uh, more so towards the early part of his career than the later. Which and that's why it took so long to go, come out. But given that we've cited him a number of times <laughs> and lauded his football IQ, um, and the same sort of dynamic happens with athletes like Kobe Bryant. Wanted to make sure we. We noted that, like, that those allegations are out there. They seem very credible and that, like, you know, should be considered in the totality of of these athletes that we're talking about. Totally. Yeah. Very good point. Um, 
we will take a break here. And then before we get to our final topic, I think we do need to have a quick shout out. Speaking of star athletes and management and what happens maybe when the when the twain shall meet, uh, we did have some breaking news this week that is just too is too delicious not to discuss just a little bit on this week's Waypoints. But we'll hit that after the break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. And we're back. Uh, before we get to uh, Austin's topic and talk a little bit about Kofi Kingston's uh, new WWE championship and what that signifies for the sport and its very complicated and ugly history, uh, first, I think we need to wrap up our, dis- our discussion of star athletes and the <laughs> role of a GM and leadership uh, by giving a big waypoint shout out to Magic Johnson, who just quit. Yesterday, uh, at time of recording, just just quit his job, not by talking to his boss. Oh, it's so good. But by talking and to in fact, media, explaining that he hadn't talked to his boss. Yeah, it comes out. Like he drops that saying, info. Right, he's the one who says it to them. Here. Like they don't. Even, they have to follow up. The press has to follow up and say, "Wait, did you did you just say the thing you just said?" He just gives the information that he didn't go to his boss to, to tell her that he was quitting. What he does also say is like, very loyal. I love her to death. I'm free. <laughs> Can you set this up for me as someone who has not been following basketball too closely this year? Okay, so um, there's a lot going on here. First, first of all, and like I'm going to give a bad summary even because I've only really been following the Lakers much since since LeBron uh, LeBron showed up there, right? <laughs> well, he's he's been um, the president of football operations for what two three years, not that long. Yeah, uh, but there's there's been a rap on him, which is that uh, yeah, the rap on Magic has been that he has not been a very modern GM in. A lot of senses of the of, of what the job means now. Magic has approached this, and basically he's gone on record as being like, "I'm Magic Johnson. My job is to get Magic Johnson caliber stars, right?" And he's so he's very much in that like '80s '90s mentality in terms of like what does a good basketball team look like? It looks like me and Kareem and some other good players. Like that's kind of like the the approach he's he's bringing to this, and. The and to a degree, like you'd say, this is the era of the super team that isn't necessarily a bad direction. Uh, the issue is that he's not actually landing the deals. Like, uh, LeBron decided to come there, but the other stars have yet to show up, and the big deals that Johnson has tried to close, uh, have spectacularly blown up. Uh, like he tried to get this really uh incredible player out of New Orleans, uh, Anthony Davis. Basically, like sent over a term sheet to the Pelicans, uh, way prematurely, offering them everything but LeBron. Yeah. Basically, like, li- like literally, like you want draft picks, we gotcha. got draft picks. You want, you want, you want every single player on this team. You can have just, Nate, which ones you want. I want Anthony Davis, and 
that's like that was his opening bid. Like he didn't even get talked up to that. It was this very much like, man, I'm just gonna put all cards on the table. I will do anything to get this player. Please rob me. Just steal, <laughs> just steal my shit. The other problem is that again, like he's had that, you know, I'm Magic Johnson, I'm gonna bring the stars. Well, how do you do that? Uh you use that charisma and the fact that you're magic. Kids like grew up watching you on TV or hearing about you. You just go up and you talk to players. Problem, when GMs go up and talk to players, that's called tampering. Mm. And there's a lot of rules against that. And he's racked up multiple fines uh, from the league for tampering with other, with other teams' players. God. Uh, and it's... And there's this incredible bit. So there's a couple good SB Nation summaries of like his tenure in LA. Uh, there's this incredible clip of him being on Kimmel where he starts explaining tampering rules and how to get around them. And so it's he's talking about like, you know, if I see if I, you know, if I see a, a star player, a star player, I think he's talking about like Paul George. You know, if I see him, I'm gonna talk to him because we're friends, we're friendly. And I'm just going to go over there and talk to him. Uh, but what I can't do is say things like, you know, I'd love to have you in L.A. But what I can do is definitely be like, you know, boy, I sure do love being in L.A. Wink, wink, wink. And this is being like exaggerated, like like wink, winking faces and like smirks and like little fingers on the nose type gestures, like everything basically to say like, no, here's here's how tampering works. I do it extensively and uh, it's a, it's a funny clip, but also it does kind of uh, sort of summarize some things that have gone wrong here. Lakers did not make the playoffs this season, which I think was an unfair expectation to put on that team to begin with. But nevertheless, like LeBron missed the playoffs. Um, But the, the, the whole thing, the, the really crucial context here is that the only piece on this team that really mattered after the season was LeBron James. Like, he was going to be the foundation for whatever happens next. The coaching staff, they've been, you know, uh, you know they've, they've been marked since Christmas, basically. That this is, like, it's going to be a house cleaning at the end of the season. They are going to completely, like, turn over the management structure of the org. All these players that LeBron is playing with right now, they were only trade away. Well, the reason you're only trade them away is because, by and large, they're all on, like, one-year contracts. Uh, this was a temporary team built to like give LeBron a credible team to play with for the season, but like this wasn't a team built for the future. So the idea was heading into this offseason, uh, the Lakers were going to you know clear out a lot of organizational deadwood, open up spots on the roster, and Magic was going to do his Magic thing. And that like we're at the end of the season, by the way. Like this is right, now. This is, this is last, when this plan yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. So it's time to start doing that. So uh, I actually linked at the top of this article. Uh, there's a good clip that I think we should take a moment and appreciate and let the people hear. Uh, this is in the middle of this press conference, but yesterday he just has a press conference outside the Staples Center that nobody knows is happening. It's unannounced. He just right. Yeah. Uh, or it's it's announced at very short notice, but like literally, he is just talking to media at the Staples Center, uh, you know, practically out of the blue. Nobody knows what this is about. He never, you know, flagged that there was an important statement. Basically, he just he just is like, "Hey, uh, I want to talk some press." Uh, you know, meet, <laughs> meet me downstairs. Uh, you know, at the at the press area in, in a few minutes. 
Um, so that's kind of the, the kind of notice he gave. I might be getting some of that wrong, but it's a, it's a very short notice press conference. Uh, nobody exactly knew it was going to come. And at this press conference, he basically announces out of the blue that he's stepping down as general manager of the Lakers. And uh, uh, we'll cue this up. Yeah. And so we got this clip this and he starts explaining Twitter, some of his this rationale. Is this is the tweet yeah. uh, by Renee uh, Bugner. Bugner. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Count me in. Sorry, Kyle's getting it ready, but I had to look at this person's Twitter, uh, uh, like, description. Their Twitter. Yeah, that was uh, great. It's very good. That's all I'll say. All right. Ready? Kyle, are you ready? Three, two, one, go. And then I got a great life. I was like, damn, I got a great life outside of this. What am I doing? You know, I got a beautiful life. So I'm going to go back to that beautiful life. And, uh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, somebody's going to have to tell my boss because she's going to be sick. But I know I couldn't face her face to face and tell her. Even though I was just with her yesterday. And, and, uh, just with her. Three hour meeting. Three hour it's meeting. About the direction of this great organization. And uh, so today. Rachel, I'm free, my love. I don't know. Did you, have you really not told Jeannie yet? <clears throat> no, I haven't. I couldn't. I couldn't, I couldn't stand to tell her. But the one thing that she had in me, somebody she could trust and loyal to her. And then I will be there so as leave. well. Bye. I've been talking to people walking Here's here. Here's loyal to next year, and I'm sitting there saying. He's shaking his head. I'm not going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> It's so good. Let I, me tell you about how deceptive I was in this three-hour meeting I, I just know. had. There is – do you remember when Vontae Davis just left last year? Uh, Vontae Davis, right. the the Buffalo Bills cornerback. Mid-game. Uh, mid-game went – like <laughs> uh, was it even during the – it wasn't even during halftime, it was, half-time. was it? It was halftime. Yeah. He was like, all right, bye. I'm done. I'm retiring <laughs> from football, <laughs> which I I would never do this. In this way, I would tell my boss I was leaving, probably. But I think this is a dream that a lot of us who have had shitty jobs have had. This fantasy of just like, I could just leave. Let me just leave. And the difference between us and Magic Johnson is that Magic Johnson is fabulously wealthy and can just do this. He's like, I'm, I could just go do nothing. Yeah. You know, be cool just like doing that. He you just know that money makes somewhere. you money? Yeah. And then you don't do shit? And you don't do shit. How well? Oh, no, oh. he's going to do something. By the way, he said he wanted to get back to being a statesman for the game. Oh, okay. And get back to tweeting. <laughs> well... You know what? Goals for me, too, honestly. Yes. Yes. I would yes. like to be a statesman of the game and give back to tweeting to the, my to, core to, values yes. as I, a reporter. Twitter, you've missed me. I know. It's time for all. You know what? We should just leave right now. No more waypoint. We're going to just be statesmen of the game for games. Welcome to Twitter. my Patreon. Statesman. statesman. Game statesman. You sound just as first, good as everything else on Patreon. I know what that shit's like. Let's attend those strategic direction meetings. Uh, they're coming up. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then yeah, I got one at two thirty. Um, yeah. And then uh, just leave. That's the plan. Like yep. just like hey, like put me at the cornerstone of oh. these things coming up. And uh, I'm gonna get back to you on Monday, and we will definitely go through with all this. Send the Let's next do a live email. Stream. Let's play some Sekiro. Yeah. And then <laughs> bye. You know what? I died at this boss. I gotta get. Some- oh. I gotta so, say something. 
Yeah. This we is should, oh, it's so good. I need just, to resurrect my career out of here. Just open up, uh, open up Twitter. Go to just do a Periscope. <laughs> just do it on Periscope. Be like, hey, while Katie, you're doing the second live stream. Right. Yeah. Exactly. God. God. Yeah. God. It's no. incredible. Oh, like, Quit longer, also- old and broke. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Put in a yeah. The new thing is not doing a screenshot of your notes app. No. It's actually bringing back Twit longer and then making a long statement of intent. About the game statesman. So this goes on for a while, right? This is not, he didn't just like, it wasn't a one minute thing. It was like a long rambly. Oh, dude, like uh, Serena Williams was asking if, uh, you know, I'd be willing to come, uh, you know, chair her organization or something like that. And I was like, yeah, cool. Let's do it. You can't uh, do like, that. Well, not is anymore. that going to happen now? No, is that going to happen? Say shit. What's amazing is that Jeannie, who is the, or is she the, Pre- she the president. Owner. She's the owner yeah. of, the, of the Lakers. His boss yeah. d- tweeted out, "Irvin, I loved working side by side with you. You brought us a long way. We will continue the journey. We love you." Like to be fair, it's the end of the season. They didn't make the playoffs. Like he isn't truly fucking anyone over in the most incredible way that he could. If it was like three months ago, this would be okay. a disaster. I'm gonna make a counterpoint here, though. Sure, off season's important. Yeah, off season's important, but more importantly. What does this mean for the coach and the coaching staff? Oh, sure. Co- like, assistant coaches don't make Magic Johnson money. They don't make, uh, like, a lot of them don't even, may not no, even necessarily, totally. I think, make, like, bench, uh, you know, bench player money. I thought you were going to say Ben um, Shapiro money, and I was going to jump <laughs> through the screen and just scream at you. He probably makes good money. I bet. I hope the LA, coaches, that, uh, the, the LA Lakers coaches are making more than Ben Shapiro money. Yeah, but I think my point is like this is like there are people I think who like literally have been wondering like am I going to be around next season like right. what's going to happen? Right. No, it sucks. And now this like is, he has thrown a, but this is all still well off people we're talking about. But to a degree, there are there are going to be people who like this is a grenade he has tossed, and like it's going to go off and it's going to like it's thrown a lot of people's plans and expectations kind of into like chaos. Yes, um, I think yes. that is the the this one is thing why worth we don't do this. Here. That's why no yeah. one does this is because it turns out very few people are in a position where no one relies on them. And, you know, it is it is a dereliction of duty and it does put throw other people out of the bus. When you want to leave a, a job, the reason that you do it isn't – the reason that you do it slowly, the reason you give two weeks notice or even longer if you're in a position of leadership or in a senior position is because you want to make sure that that transition of power is very smooth. Like my boss recently uh, quit after – 13 or 14 years of being here um, to go like explore the nature, which like she's super deserves. She's brilliant and worked incredibly hard. Like one of the people who I, who I can say is easily one of the most brilliant and hardworking people I've ever met in my life. And she gave like two and a half months, three months notice and then was still around afterwards for a little bit. And that, like the reason she did that wasn't because like she wanted to keep collecting a paycheck or because she felt like if she did it, you know, uh, more quickly, like she wanted to get the fuck out. She did want to go away, but she knew how many people counted on her to make that transition smooth. And so I get the value of that. But this is the dream. The dream really is no call, no show. Or honestly, this is better than a no call, no show. This is like coming into your office or like going into the going into the workplace and like, hey, everybody uh, in the store, uh, real quick, uh, yeah, can you look up from the from the table with your with your frap? Yeah, you, uh, I'm done. <laughs> I this Starbucks and me not working out anymore. Uh, or or you know what? Uh, the Gap has done well by me for the last six months. But you know what? I'm kind of done with Kelly's bullshit. Or so. <laughs> 
I'm out. Or it's like showing up to the office and like shooting the shit with everybody and like high fiving. Man, it's been great. Like, hey, you want to just like you know hang out by the coffee machine a few minutes? Like, hey, I'm just gonna hold court there for a little while. Uh, By the way, it's my last day. It's been real. Um, Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah. Look, I like I you know I've known it for a while, but I haven't told anyone. (laughs) Uh, I put it my two weeks two weeks ago. Yeah, in my head. Yeah, that meeting yesterday. I gotta fill this mug with M and M's real quick. (laughs) Let me just. uh, That meeting was hilarious from my perspective yesterday, by the way. It was, whoo, you're talking about stuff in December? I'm going to be on a beach in December, my guy. Yeah. Uh, but I think the other thing is, there's two things to bear in mind. One is, uh, and this is Stephen A's theory. Uh, Stephen A's oh boots God, on the ground in LA. Can we watch that video? Uh, <laughs> it's, in the, it's in there, isn't it? I put it in, in reads. It's, in, it's, the, it's yeah, reads. in reads. Are you in reads? Let's, let's do this, and then we got to close this segment. I out. know. Turn it into it's a full segment. So funny, though, Patrick. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> Scroll. Watching up. this happen last night. Right there. Like, Twitter's bad, but then Twitter is good <laughs> for is, moments like this. We need where just this a thing Twitter. just electrifies everyone that is ha- that is on there. Stephen A. Smith. All right. Uh, uh, the highest paid uh, ESPN contributor at this point, right? Just just came uh, out. Sure. I think I so. It. Just sur- narrowly survived that assassination attempt by that turkey. <laughs> um, you know, Are we uh, Mother Nature's got shooters out there looking for him. <laughs> Don't worry, Stephen uh, A's got shooters. All right, all right ready? Yeah. Three, right. two, one, go. What's up, everybody? It's Stephen A. I'm in L.A. I don't know what the hell happened. Magic Johnson has quit. I'm going to find out. Does this mean that Luke Walton is staying on as coach? Does this mean LeBron pulled a power move? Is Ty Lue inevitably going to be the next head coach? What the hell is going on? I have no idea. I cannot believe that Magic Johnson quit. He did tell us. He did tell us that it's something that he would definitely do if it wasn't working out. People complaining. He's got business interests. He don't have time for this nonsense. And it also (laughs) tells me that maybe he was scared he wasn't going to get anybody else to come to L.A. We are about to find out what the hell is going on. I cannot believe it. I'm in Southern California. The palm trees are behind me. I don't believe this. I can't believe that Magic Johnson is behind me this soon. But it's not this clean, ladies and gentlemen. (gasps) If Magic Johnson has walked away... There is something going on. I don't know if LeBron has something to do with it or not, but something ain't right. Something ain't right. And damn it, it's time that we find out. First take in the house tomorrow on ESPN. Oh, Lord have mercy. God damn. What a pro. I fucking hate him so much, but I love him so much. The world is better for him existing and here to give us takes. The palm trees behind him, and he has to say, there are palm trees behind me. I love you, Stephen. I you could only be in LA. Find out. I need cartoon. to look up Waz on Twitter <laughs> and find out what's happening. It's well, so see, the thing is, he shoot he's shooting that video actually like down in Miami, basically. Oh, yeah. Like he's like he's, he's don't look at any like, license plates. I'm 100 in LA. <laughs> yeah, there is a Florida uh, car show happening here right now. <laughs> Coincidentally, when the zombie apocalypse occurs, I am just going to be following Stephen A. Smith for updates. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, but I, I do think there's like this element of like, you know, there always has been this idea of LeBron James does not just show up and be a player for your team. Like yes. he shows up and he's your G- he's he's the, the GM from the court, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, he has a better, re- he has a slightly better record doing it. Yes, um, but the so maybe there is an element of uh, you know there, there, something did go down here. Uh, but I do kind of just like this idea of Magic just sitting in his car. And like realizing, you know what? 
fuck this. Cause we've all been there and like, this mm-hmm. is, this is the dream. Yeah. Totally. So live that dream magic. Live it for all of us. <sighs> all right. Uh, but now uh, for our final, I guess that's a little more than a shout out, a little, uh, yeah. but <laughs> now for our other segment, uh, Austin, you want to take us into this? Yeah, totally. So the, so pro wrestling is a thing that has had its ups and downs. Uh, I think if you're in our, age group, there's a good chance that you were at least familiar with some of the big names of wrestling in the 90s, the Stone Cold Steve Austins. You certainly know who The Rock is if you listen to this podcast. Maybe you don't see The Rock's movies, but like, I I bet you could picture The Rock in your mind, Dwayne Johnson. Um, And the funny thing about The Rock is he was the first person of African descent to carry, to hold the highest championship in the WWE, the WWE title. Now, there's a there's another um, major title that joined with the WWE or that, that was created when the WWE bought WCW, its chief rival in the 1990s. And that title has been held by a couple other black guys, uh, Mark Henry, uh, a.k.a. Sexual Chocolate Mark Henry, a.k.a. the world's oh strongest God, man, I've Mark Henry. Oh, uh-huh. And Booker T, who is uh, now a commentator occasionally. And, and he did, does a bunch of other like talent side stuff with the WWE, also held that title. Um, the Rock is the only one up until now who has held the main WWE heavyweight championship. Um, I believe that's actually – let me just double, double check that it, or because, because the title names actually changed – a lot at this point. No, the heavyweight championship is the other one. That is the one that Booker T and Mark Henry had had held. That was a top tier belt, but it was not the original historical WWE championship, which is just called now the WWE championship. Um, this weekend, Kofi Kingston, uh, a veteran of wrestling for years and years and years, a veteran of the WWE for eleven years. Uh, won it at WrestleMania, the biggest event in in the years like the year of wrestling. You know, the re- wrestling has pay per views every month, or WWE has re- has pay per views every month. Um, but the the there's like a big four, and WrestleMania is the biggest of the big four. The thing that makes this interesting one is just one is Kofi Kingston is not just a black man. Uh, he is a Ghanaian American. He he uh, immigrated from Ghana. He was born in Ghana, uh, and is has made Ghana. He speaks you know openly about his his uh, heritage. Um, and also there is something different about, and I'm not, I want to be 100% clear, I'm not saying that Ro- The Rock is not a black man, is not a person of color, he absolutely is. Um, he comes from a great um, Maori uh, uh, wrestling family. He has like a, a number, he's a very diverse background and is, as someone who was growing up, absolutely looked at him as like a successful light-skinned black man. And I was like, me, <laughs> uh, but I will never be The Rock. Um, but... But The Rock also succeeds on succeeds on the basis of early on in his career in the WWE, shifting away from uh, being openly black or being having blackness as part of his character as he separated from the Nation of Domination, a villainous group that was sold as a sort of like Black Panther movement or really, I guess, probably leaning even closer on the, the uh, Brotherhood of Muslims, right? Like stuff like that. Um, there was, uh, and in general, his, the pitch around The Rock has always been about universality, not about his blackness. The rise of Kofi Kingston in the last six months in the WWE, really the last three months, has a lot to do with circumstance, but it also has a lot to do with the way, or the thing that makes it interesting, is, is the way that he and the stable, the group that he's part of, the New Day, have made it explicitly about race, or explicitly is the wrong word, um, have spoken to... <sighs> 
the way that they have framed Kofi's attempts uh, to get a, a title challenge and to win the belt have been about the fact that he has worked twice as hard and gotten half as much. They've written, they've spoken in terms that are very understandable if you're clued in on this stuff. And that even if you're not, when you look at someone like Kofi Kingston, who is a dark-skinned black man uh, with, with braids, say people like us, it is hard not to know what, it, what he is saying. This past weekend, he gets this title chance, he wins, he beats Daniel Bryan, who is this fan favorite, who is a great wrestler, who's had a, a fantastic career, a career in which he actually left uh, briefly because of potential brain injury, and then returned, and I still get nervous every time I see him in the ring, to be honest. Um, and uh, his, his win kind of mirrored uh, Daniel Bryan's ascent in some ways, because both of them are smaller men, both of them are people who... Uh, found great fan uh, uh, support, but who did not have support it behind the scenes. And I was left kind of trying to unpack a lot of this because on one hand, I felt great when Kofi won. I threw the through the the match, I wasn't sure that they were going to give it to him, which I guess is is part of the conversation also. He won the title. But what that means is that a collection of storytellers behind the scenes, ideally involving Kofi in that process, but who knows because it's a black box, decided that he would win that belt. Right. Because the push was right, because the angle was interesting, because they wanted to give him the belt, which doesn't mean he didn't earn it. And I think we'll get into that in a little bit, too. But I felt good about it. But at the same time, this is a company that has had terrible, uh, terrible history, not only with with racism. I mean, you know, you look at the the pre honestly through the honestly still has lots of problems around around racism, uh, around using racist caricature, around playing on uh, fears of the other. Um, it's a it's a organization that uh, treats its workers really poorly. Uh, that uses laws around independent contractors to make sure that they don't get the support that they need, both medical and financial. Uh, John Oliver just did a piece on this on his show. Uh, it it had protects uh, allegedly homophobic bullies like uh, like JBL, who's one of their longtime commentators and a, and a in ring talent um, from from charges that are like. Really, really disgusting. Uh, and then, like, the headliner of one of the headliners of this of WrestleMania, I mean, it was great that there was a women's match as the main event, but also that main event was centered on Ronda Rousey, who has said truly shitty transphobic things, has domestic abuse allegations, and once promoted a Sandy Hook truther video on her Twitter feed, right? This is not a company that I can feel good about caring about, even though I think pro wrestling is in a really fantastic place right now if you care about great in-ring performance, interesting characters. You look at some of the stuff that's happening in New Japan world. You look at stuff that's happening in, in emerging uh, uh, independent uh, federations here in the States. All around the world, there's lots of interesting wrestling happening. But the WWE is the WWE. And so people pay attention there and it's also a fucking mess. And so I'm still just trying to talk it out and just try to like figure out where do I come down on all this stuff. Um, I'm curious for you two because you don't follow wrestling at this point. If you have questions or thoughts about this as outsiders. I so uh, didn't watch WrestleMania, uh -huh. uh, but I did watch. You linked to um, a like d after the match, like interview with the New Day, yes. including Kofi, in which they uh, discuss like what happened, and it's like a nine minute thing. I think it's like worth watching the entire. I was only like, oh, I'll watch the first couple of minutes, and then I found myself sort of like gripped yeah. for the entire nine minutes because my as someone that like watched a lot of 
diehard wrestling fan in like the during like the merger of like the w, WCW and the WWF, like in the Goldberg, like early Rock, yeah, Stone Cold, like yeah. that sort of era. And I remember Sexual Chocolate and Booker T, like that was all of that era that I was like really, really into wrestling in like late elementary uh, uh, and, and middle school. Um, my like entire understanding of like the interview is it's all part of the act, the performance, it's it's hyping up the next thing. And so I don't know, maybe you can explain how much of what I found so interesting about this interview. It is nine minutes where they talk, yeah. like they're like the whole veil drops. It, it is they are not in character. They are just themselves. Um as much as like you are I know I like I having met Xavier Woods yeah. and like interact with him, um, this felt like very authentic. I and mean, all three of them, they shaved my fucking face over the Mario Maker <laughs> thing a couple of years back. <laughs> yep, I did too. I was like, no, I've met all of them. And they were all incredibly nice guys. And this came across as like just authentically them responding yeah. to a moment that is a reflection of where they have come from, both as individuals and a group. There's like there's like genuine crying involved. And it was really amazing. But what I found, like when, when I was writing down, it's like a, such a strange thing to watch. And it sounds like it's reflective of a thing you're talking about where it's like, you cannot watch that nine minute video where they talk about how hard they've worked, yeah. how far they've come, how much has been through a combination of work ethic and circumstance, things like injuries, things like luck, things like the uh, other people giving them uh, a chance to succeed in which it's all coded in race, but it's, you gotta, you, you have to know that's what they're talking about. Yeah. Now, granted, you have any inkling of what they're talking about. You're paying attention at all. You know that's what this is about. But in no at no point do they talk. I mean, they're talking about their blackness without talking about their blackness. Yeah. And it's such a fascinating interview to to watch because there are so many different ways that people could come away from that interview. Where it's like if you're if you know what they're talking about, you have come away with a totally different. It's still about work and effort, but I, it was just a really interesting nine minutes to watch them process what happened, but also, and they're winking and nodding at like, well, there are other people involved in this process, right? Like someone scripted, a group of scriptwriters allowed some parts of this to happen, which doesn't take away from what the effort they put in, but it's also like you cannot talk about wrestling without talking about the scripted part mm -hmm. of it, but they can't talk about the scripted part. And so all these different layers of what you can and can't talk about, what's in code and what's not in code, how much you're paying attention to the meta context, just a really fascinating nine minutes, even if you don't know much about what's going on here. Yeah. So I, so a couple things, I guess I'll, two things. One, I would say to your question of like, hey, what's up with this promo? The facade seemed to be dropped a lot. I will say that in the, I mean, even when we were watching as kids, part of the appeal was that it felt like the facade was dropping a little bit. Like, yes, there's still an undead, you know, wrestler, the Undertaker who has superpowers and like <laughs> uh -huh, there's still uh -huh. a clean facade. But then like when you get Stone Cold Steve Austin talking shit to the CEO, that felt like it, it, it rung true, right? Like it felt like, oh, well, there's a truth under this about class relations. Even if it's not, we're not saying the word class, we're not talking about workers' rights. Yeah. There's a fuck your boss element. And that felt like honest in some way. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, at the height of 
the Monday Night Wars, you literally had recognition between the two companies of the other brand and attempts to fuck over the other brand. Talking about wrestling as terms of brands and contracts was already like breaking kayfabe, which is this kind of like the 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 agreement not to go out of character, if that makes sense, right? Um, in the in the twenty tens, the I think a couple things happened. One is with, there was a lot of success in the early twenty tens from wrestlers who blurred that even further. There was like the infamous pipe bomb promo that CM Punk oh. cut, which is a great promo in which he gets very clear about uh, one of the things he gets clear about is like the ways in which the the like, kind of where they cut his mic is he starts to talk about the bullies that are at it's the training center. It's one of the best pieces of live theater I've ever seen. It's so fucking good. Like and it's it, like, like and it's this is the profoundly weird thing. Like I was I was having this conversation with Danielle the other day and like to me like wrestling feels so much like theater in the round. Yes, 100%. Um, where, like, it's this weird thing of, like, we're telling stories. They are, like, they are narratives. They are authored. But they will, they can be changed based yeah. on how well we can get the audience and that's uh, the on entire, our side. Yeah, so that's the story of the New Day. So really quick, the last thing I'll say is the other big change is, the last thing I'll say on this first topic is the the internet changes a lot. Right, Xavier Woods is not just Xavier Woods. He's Austin Creed. He has he, that's his his real name, and that's out in public. And he runs Up Up Down Down, a video game YouTube uh, uh, channel with the permission of the WWE, I believe. He gets other wrestlers to come play video games. Wrestlers he will wrestle tomorrow night. Will come and play, you know, a new uh, a multiplayer game with him. Right, his like, hustle is incredible. His hustle is incredible. Like, the amount of yes. work that he does. If you were just to follow his gaming stuff, you'd be like, cool, full time job. And then, like, mm-hmm. I remember meeting him backstage, and like when Dan and I did a thing with him, it's like, nah, he's just got like a suitcase. He opens up, he's got a capture yep. unit, he's got mics. Like, he's, he's ready. It's right next roll. to all the wrestlers coming to do the fucking buffet before they're out to do <laughs> Raw. And like, it's just the weirdest. And, right. I mean, just un- un- unbelievable amount of respect for the the, the work that he. Puts and in. so he's very obviously a real person on Twitter. Big E, the uh, one of the other member we haven't spoken about yet, uh, the New Day is out on Twitter being Big E. Right. The the relationships that they have. The friendships that they have, the things that they're interested in, all of that stuff and who they are, not just not just the New Day, but especially the New Day, are core to who they are as, as a brand, as a group, as a set of friends, as a group that you root, uh, that you root for. Um, wrestling, because of the internet, because of social media, has had to confront the fact that people know that it's scripted and that there are more and more every year fans who are interested in – playing along at home at that level, who maybe you still surprise by the outcome of a match, but who are also interested in what we call fantasy booking. How would you, what would you, who, what winners would you pick? How would you dictate the storylines? What would you, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, armchair quarterbacking, except it's about narrative structure. It's about uh, what spots would be good in the ring, like what interesting uh, uh, fight moments could happen. Uh, calling out, like, when a, when a, mm. a, a fight goes wrong, when someone botches a, a move and like, wow, that was supposed to seem deliberate, but it was not, you know? Well, and it's this weird thing, too, where, like, I think all of this is starting to change now with this media era we're in. But for years, like, fan fiction existed in a completely different realm from the actual, like, created, like, published work on TV or books. But with some of what we see in wrestling, like, again, this discourse around, like, hey, what would you like to see? You can actually, like, make compelling case that, like, these discussions that people are having – are being observed and monitored and like some of the, you know what I mean? Like people are watching to see, well, what yes. would get people like, what is the fan service people want to see? WWE to some extent 
tries and serves that up. Right. Uh, Except when no, they think, fucking don't. And that is the other thing yeah. is like you, if you are on Twitter and you're following any of us and you're following enough people in video games, you know yep. that there's lots of game fans or, or wrestling fans in the world of gaming and everyone gets so frustrated at events because of bad booking or because of what they perceived bad booking, a storyline that breaks bad. They're trying to push a wrestler who, I mean, this is the, how all this works is that the company internally makes bets on who they think will go big and who will sell a lot of t-shirts. And so like in the between 2016 and 2018, they put a lot behind Roman Reigns, a wrestler who I think is like pretty good and who had a great history with a smaller group called the or not a smaller group but a, a stable called the Shield. And when they put all that that push behind him, people reacted super negatively because it was so transparent. It was so clear they wanted to make someone to be as successful as The Rock or John Cena and there was no subtlety or nuance in it. It was so overly obvious that fans pushed back and they spent two and a half years not giving the fans what they wanted uh, and like there are instances where there's that disconnect it isn't just it isn't Marvel movies the good guys don't win in the end always in the sense that the, well, the, this the is outcome partly, isn't secured well and this is partly the critique that CM Punk is making in the Python video right. where he's yes. basically calling out Sena not just as a per like not just as a technical performer though that's part of it, but there's this broader critique that Punk is making that he's putting into words the thing a lot of people I think who observe wrestling feel, which is that a lot of times the show is being sacrificed, the story is being sacrificed to who plays the internal politics right. of WWE better, right? Who right. is as he puts it, who is good at kissing Vince McMahon's ass, right? And, and so making Vince believe you're the future of wrestling. Well, even that's complicated because Vince is still the man there. But Triple H uh, uh, is the next man, right? Is the one who has been like developed in charge of developmental, in charge of making NXT a big brand, and NXT is their kind of developmental brand. And under uh, you know, in this world of like who is making the decisions, who is uh, is winning the arguments internally about who wins and who loses, the New Day was dealt a really poor hand. Uh, they debuted in 2014 um, and had to disappear basically immediately because. Uh, this is this is. Let me say that what I'm about to say is supposition, but I think I stand by it. The day that the new day, the the opening like uh, the the recruitment of the new day starts with Xavier Woods. Xavier Woods showing up after Big E and Kofi Kingston lose a match, and he goes up to them. And at this point, he is wearing a suit and he has his hair blown out and he has glasses on, uh, and he is affecting a sort of Kwame Touré, like black power era uh, uh, voice. And he comes out and says, we cannot get anywhere in this world by kissing babies. We cannot win by being good guys. We have to stop asking politely for things and start taking things. And then they fought like that for one, one or two matches on small side shows, not on Raw or SmackDown, the two big shows, uh, maybe a couple house shows. And then they kind of got pulled from TV. And this is all right in the middle of Black Lives Matter. Then they reappear oh, in November uh, uh, via a bunch of promotional vignettes in which they've been positioned as like black gospel, a black gospel group. There's like a choir behind them clapping and singing. And this is where It's a New Day, Yes It Is, comes from. It is this uh, aspirational, heroic positive black power. Very ready to kiss babies. Very ready to kiss babies. 
Um, and Did they, they already come, have the colorful outfits at that point? No, too? no, I mean that's yeah, that's where those colorful outfits are deployed, yeah. right? They come out with this sort of like neo soul vibe, right? And they are great performers in the ring, but people hate them. They would come out with uh, and get booed constantly with the new day new sucks. Day sucks. Day sucks. Yeah. New day sucks. And they kept at it. And the story, as I've as I've heard it over and over again, is upper management didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know how to spin them right, but they were good performers and they were okay heels. Heels are like it's like the term for like the bad guys. Uh, and so they kind of let them they let them work the crowds. They let them be bad guys by being ultra positive. They were going to be the so one sub character that you can have in wrestling that is a heel that is a bad guy is someone who thinks that they're the good guy, right? They go out there and they try to work the crowd. And they don't come out and they go, Cincinnati sucks. They go out there and say stuff that's so like naive that they get that they're hated by the body and audience who sees through their bullshit, right? Uh, Kurt Angle was historically one of these. The all-American good guy, real wrestler, won five gold medals, uh, tells you to, you know, is doing Hulk Hogan, except everyone hates Hulk Hogan. For okay, to be clear, everyone should hate Hulk Hogan. And part of my beef with WrestleMania <laughs> uh-huh, is yeah. Hulk Hogan comes out at the beginning of this WrestleMania. Like Hulk Hogan fucking sucks and is clear has said truly racist things. Uh, as as I think all of us are familiar with, uh, this came to light during some of the show Wait, with Docker. Is there, is there video? Oh yeah, there's a video. Is, it turns is there a out. tape? There's a tape. It's, there's a tape. I don't, I don't want to. We don't have to go through this. We don't have to go through this patch, and we don't you. need to. But. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, the, the, the New Day sticks with it and ends up gaining so much momentum. And they end up eventually turning the crowd back around on them, becoming champions, holding the championship for some extremely long period of time. And that's not because – and this is where the, some of the what is wrestling has to boil up because it is a combination of in-ring performance. Sometimes you just get someone who's a blast to watch, who just like – they know how to work well in terms of choreography and performance – in a way that people get excited about the story that's happening inside the ring. You have people who are good on the mic, which is like people get out there, they come up with creative ways to talk shit, they do skits, the New Day does all of this, right? And you have people who know how to play the back room well, right? You know how, they have people who know how to, to talk to in the decision-making process. They're leaders in the way that we were talking earlier about the way Aaron Rodgers is not with young talent. Uh, they're people who are willing to lose uh, is a big thing, right? Like, are you willing to lose the title? Are you willing to lose an important match to try to bring up a new young talent or a talent that's coming over from a different, you know, federation or uh, another group? Um, and, like, are you able to sell merchandise? These are kind of the four things that I would say are you're judged on as a pro wrestler. In-ring performance, merchandise sales, on-mic performance, and backroom dealing. And... They were really good at all of those things except for the backroom dealing, but not because they weren't nice or not because they weren't affable or not because they weren't helping people because they weren't in the same rooms, because they weren't <clears throat> married into the family. Um, uh, and and so that ended up being the core of this storyline was everybody back there likes us, but I'm not being given the shots. Kofi's been here 11 years, but – He's literally never had a one-on-one shot for the WWE Championship. 
ever. He's been part of four-person, you know, gimmick matches where he'll emerge from a cage or whatever, right? Because he's a great performer in that sense where everyone goes, wow, he could win, but then he doesn't win. He has these great spots at, Rest- or at R- Royal Rumble where he almost gets eliminated, but then he gets tossed back into the ring, and that's a funny thing that happens. But he doesn't ever get that one-on-one chance. And so that ended up being the core of what this angle, what this push was. I want to get into the Ian Williams piece here. Yes, which is a fantastic uh, he, he wrote a Yeah, so Ian uh, has written a lot for, for Waypoint. Uh, he did the Bruise Day column for us uh, after Vice Sports uh, had, had layoffs and was shut down a couple years back. We yep. took over Bruise Day. And uh, now he's doing a similar sort of wrestling criticism uh, over at looks like Deadspin now, uh, which, which is awesome. And Ian's a good writer, um, but like just a masterful critic of of wrestling i'd I'd Mm -hmm. love reading his stuff on on wrestling uh you should just dig into all those archives but he writes the story for just before the uh the belt the before kofi won the belt he writes this piece uh ww is trying to diffuse its own history with a storyline and he's really digging into in this piece the the weirdness and how uncomfortable it is to have part of what makes wrestling work is it brings real beefs real pain real problems into the story and people sort of as part of the show say the things that people in the audience are thinking. They say the things that are sort of in the air in the broader cultural discourse. And uh, it, in some ways it's very liberating and affirming to see some of that stuff, make it into the story. Like, wow, they went there. Cool. The problem is it is also then being commodified and used as part of the storyline to like further, the development of this uh, really like genuinely problematic and often toxic institution. And I think uh, like Ian puts it really, really, really well. And I think this is why WWE ends up so fascinating for me because in a lot of ways, WWE seems like a sped up microcosm of what happens in like popular culture in, in America across politics mm. and, and everything else where the, you see it happen on a fast enough timescale in wrestling that you see how it all works. But some of the same dynamics are alive, right? Like things are, people are sort of ripped from their context and defanged. They are made part of institutions that they would once would have critiqued. Um, and that just happens faster and sort of more nakedly in wrestling. But uh, you know, Ian, as he, as he writes about the way that, Kofi in his rise and the uh, story beats of the arc leading to this leading to this championship is simultaneously bringing up important good critiques and observations about the history of wrestling, uh, what it is to be a black performer, a, a black artist uh, in a profoundly racist society dealing with structurally racist institutions, uh, but he's also doing it as part of a story for one of those institutions. And Ian closes on this really great uh, paragraph. Think of it as an autoimmune response. Confronted with any uncomfortable truth, WWE reflexively drags it into the ring and into the show, where the truth becomes another storyline to twist as needed. Pro wrestling, and especially WWE, exists in the liminal space between real and not. Everyone knows this. Fake feuds become real ones, only to slide back again. The racism that's added meaning and depth and heat to Kofi Kingston's rise is both very real and safely not, and control of the story is back in WWE's hands. The ease with which wrestling slips between reality and reality is what makes the form so endlessly compelling. It's also what makes it, and keeps it, so terrible. Right. 
Yeah, totally. Fucking Early, awesome yeah, graph. Ian's fucking great. Earlier in the PC notes, Kath Barbado from uh, WrestleSplania, a great podcast, noting uh, or arguing that th- what the WWE does is commodify dissent, right? It takes any sort of dissenting position and brings it in, on board either by vilifying it directly, by like having a stand-in for whoever their critics are, or by just capitalizing on a storyline. And it sucks. And it sucks so much. And also, I saw how excited Kofi Kingston's son was when he wrapped the belt around his father and hugged him with it. And this gets back to so many conversations we've had over the years about Black Panther, about so many things around identity and the, the conflict in which what capital wants us to do is see potential for ourselves in it, right? That like... When it tells stories like this, they are exceptional still. We're still at the point where where the argument being made is like, you too can do this, so buy these t-shirts. <laughs> um, and it's just so frustrating not to be able to either celebrate something outright or to not be invested at all. And that's where I wish I could be. I wish I could be at either one of those places. I wish I could be excited about the WWE because it's making good choices, it's taking care of its workers, it's not working with noted racists and transphobes and Sandy Hook truthers, and I could celebrate this win and hope that Kofi continues to do great. Or that there was another, that I could just not care at all, that I was just not invested at all. But given the scope, the platform that they have, I remain, I, I continue to care, you know? Um, it, it's it's one of those things, it's just like, in the same way that I continue to care about, you know, uh, mainstream video games, even though I don't necessarily love most of them, and I, even though I want there to be representation in them, and want there to be better, you know, workers' rights, even though, by and large, at this point, if a AAA game comes out, chances are I'm not going to like it that much. I still want those games to be good and better about questions of diversity and politics, and also want their workers to be treated well. I can't just shut off that part of my brain that disconnects me, and I want to go live on a hill like a hermit somewhere. Like, I, I wish I could, because it would it would make me, you know, a lot more relaxed as a person. <laughs> I may be worse for it, right? Maybe, maybe also in, in an era where, and maybe that's the, maybe that's the alternative is, is the alternative a world of like irony politics and nihilism where you just get to not care about every, anything at all. And then you get to go like, wow, cool, but cool suplex. And, and is that the, is that the alternative I'd, I'd actually, that would actually happen and be worse for all of us? Or you just end up not being able to have a lot of simple joys. I think that's the really right. complicated thing, right? Is like right. I think a lot of us are keenly aware at all times of these broader contexts, of these greater trajectories of our society and the structures in, in which we live and uh, sort of circumscribe our possibilities. Yeah. At the same time within those structures, I – Still and, and yet I still live there, and yet yeah, I still yeah, yeah. try to find my pleasures but there's and joy other there, wrestling. and they're never I, unalloyed. If I wanted to make the argument against the WWE, the number one thing I would say is there is a lot of independent wrestling out there. Some of it's also shitty, to be clear. Some of, the, some of those federations and, and associations still work with garbage people, but there are leagues out there where they, they are working with young, interesting talent, where they're doing smart work uh, in women's wrestling, there are, are you know, I, I think that there was actually literally just a, a great documentary on the Golden Lovers um, uh, that just hit earlier this year, I think, or maybe a couple of weeks ago. 
um, that is about uh, a group that or a, a tag team that had an incredible uh, kind of arc last year that we've talked about here or there uh, in in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, there's even wrestling all around the world. Like there is other wrestling to watch. But what brings people back to the WWE is it's the WWE. It's super well, it's easy to follow. It's the big stage. It's the like, biggest stage. The attraction right. of the big stage is like you you can't ignore that. Right. Like we we are inexorably not just as as critics, but just as people, as fans, like as people are like want to be part of the thing that everyone else is looking at. And so you yes, like in the same way that we could turn away our eye from AAA games and only play the indie games that like fulfill uh, our desires and wants and needs from what we'd like to see from games at the same time, it's impossible to look away both as a fan and as a critic from the thing the that everyone thing. else is still staring at the big thing. What is our responsibility? Well, Cause also there's a, there's a trickle down effect from that. Like there is, there is impact from the big thing changing. Cause like it, it, it impacts all it's, it is so structurally in uh, important to, to everything else that, like change there means change everywhere in a way that c- can be felt and is desired. Right. Is there a responsibility or do you ever think that there is a responsibility? I mean, obviously I think we all agree that there is a responsibility for us to find those things that have been pushed to the margins and give them attention and, and, and time to, um, I know we're actually talking about this a lot right now because, uh, we're, we're thinking about like, hey, should how broad should our focus be when it comes to coverage? Should we be reporting on things like – what was the thing you talked about today, Patrick? There was something like an hour ago that you were like, hey, should I hit this? This is a little bit broader in focus. Um, I've already blanked because I told you it wasn't worth it. Oh, the your, PlayStation Network uh, oh, name, name change. Stuff. Right. You can change your username. Change your username. Yeah, finally. And it's like, OK, well, that, that serves a really broad audience. It's messaging uh, a new service. It's service journalism is, is always a thing that's kind of valuable to some reader somewhere who only comes to us for games news or games coverage. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, I would love to change my my username. I made it when I was 16 and it was like d- double butt lover or whatever, which, hey, you know what? <laughs> I think maybe keep your name. You know what? I had a poster on my wall. It said double that butt said, lover. Double butt lover. You say a classic mistake just like me. I had Mecha Mothra. Right. You had double butt lover. He, you know, it's a wrestler that people don't really talk about these days. <laughs> But, you know, Double Butt Lover, just <laughs> one tremendously of, influential. One of Mick Foley's uh, rarer uh, known <laughs> alter egos, Double Butt Lover. <laughs> Cactus Jack, Mankind, Dude Love, and Double Butt Lover. Um, and uh, but I was like, yeah, like, isn't there – what I actually literally said is any other use of your time would be better spent. But – the reason I'm, I say this is like, well, there are other stories about other things happening in the world of games that are more important. Like, could should I have? And this is, I'm, you know, I'm happy to have had this conversation. This is the conversation I wanted to have, but I could have just as easily had a conversation about an interesting independent thing happening in pro wrestling from, uh, you know, a, a queer wrestler, from a wrestler, a different wrestler of color. From like, I, I'm having this conversation. I want to have this conversation. I'm not walking back this conversation, but I do wonder if we have a responsibility to check ourselves with regard to our focus and the biggest thing in the room or if we have a responsibility to always talk about the biggest thing in the room because it is big and affects the most people and we should make sure to weigh in on that. We just did this with the second row difficulty discussion that I'm happy we had, but also there's the other tension. I think for me, like I consider this and we opened the show talking about the NFL 
And right. It, right. like an organization that in a lot of ways, like I truly find detestable. I find its politics detestable. I find its owner class detestable. Um, like the economics of it are disgraceful. The way people discuss players. Like there are so many things about the NFL that yeah. disgust me. Problem is that this is also one of the great water cooler topics for, and this is, and this is part of it is like, I think there are, there is a responsibility to have these, to, to have these, uh, other, like raise other issues, focus on them, but also maybe try to have discussions that take place away from these giant, like problematic tent poles. Mm-hmm. I understand the impulse for that, but here's the other, here's the other part. Just as a person, in terms of a thing that actually like brings me just an immediate sense of like joy and eagerness to like shoot the shit with y'all about, when Patrick dropped that Bleach Report article into a DM last week, like I was immediately like, oh shit! And we spent like twenty minutes sort of like sending excerpts back and forth, like talking it over, like, right. oh, did you see this line? Yeah, that's that's wild. Like, what about this line? Oh, yeah, Jennings always been you know on that beat. Uh, and the thing about that is. I think like a lot of people who watch the NFL know it sucks. Like, like, like genuinely, yes, there are those people who are like, get those guys to stand at attention for the flag. But I think a lot of NFL fans know it fucking sucks. Uh, know, the, know the organization sucks. And we all like to a degree know that in some ways to, to even partake as a fan uh, leaves you somewhat compromised. But I think the flip side of that is again, like speaking of like living in and among these structures, it is also really fun and sociable, I suppose, is the way. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a weird form of, like, this is easy common ground to find. It is an easy way to have a discussion, not only with your friends, but, like, a conversation that a lot of people as audience members or other participants can also feel like they are invested in because it is such a major touchstone. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like you talking- We live in a world where that's, it's increasingly disparate, right? Where, like, the, the, the blessing of having a million different things you can focus your attention to also means we, like, don't find ourselves with a lot of common ground where you can talk about things. So then it becomes the case that, oh, there are these things where like, like we are naturally like attracted to being able to have a discussion in which there are a lot of people also having the discussion. It is then a natural consequence of that. We're like, all right, well, if we're already here, okay, we're here. Right. So why can't this thing that we're all at be better? Mm -hmm. And so that's like a really natural impulse is one. And in a society where, we are theoretically more connected. I think most people would actually say like they feel more lonely even in their own personal interests than ever before. So then I think as a natural counterweight to that is to then move towards the things that connect people by virtue of being large. But then also once you've realized, once the veil is dropped and you realize like, ah, shit, this, this thing is bad, partially because it is big, you then demand the big thing is better because, well, we're all at this water cooler. So, you know, we should probably talk about how maybe we should like, clean up like this water cooler is also kind of making us sick yeah we see this yeah. but it does, seem, but it does seem like a solvable problem as opposed yeah. to something that has to stay that way yeah, I'm, yeah i think i'm with you i just wanted to like actually give voice to those reasons and those thoughts because i think that yeah. that's like an important it's an important check right because i think we get, there are times when any critic backslides and realizes like oh shit like i'm only caught on to whatever the hottest, newest, biggest, biggest thing is and not interested in the margins or peripheries. I think we do our best to like hit that stuff too um, when it yeah. when it finds us or like when it finds its way in front of us, but also when we dig for it and find it a little bit. Uh, but yeah, that's all. That's all I wanted them yeah. to talk about. That's all I wanted to talk about today. Small subject. <laughs> 
small yep. lift. The isolation of human society. Well done. Yeah. The need to connect. Totally. Another totally. another tight and wrestling. Five stars. Uh, thanks to <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thanks to two mellow over the track. Slide asleep off the album after midnight. You can find that at two mellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. Patrick, where can people keep up with you online? At Patrick Klopik. Austin. At Austin underscore Walker. Uh, you can keep up with our producer Kato at on Twitter at a underscore Kato underscore appears. And you can find me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, that'll do it for this week's Waypoints. We hope you've enjoyed the break. Please be sure to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it allows such a thing. I like to think we're a five-star podcast, but it's not for me to say. Uh, we will be back again with Waypoint Radio on Friday. You should also be sure and listen to Be Good and Rewatch It, where... Uh, oh, boy, Jesus the, Christ, you people! How many? How long? We're finished. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I excuse me if I don't believe you. No, we are. It's 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 formally done. All it took was a short formally five done hour is recording. also wiggle room. Was it Kato? Was it another being total? That episode, that episode, which we're now cutting into <laughs> two episodes, was five hours. Five and a half. Five and a half hours. Our final. Oh, yeah, is Prime Prejudice longer than more reasons? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think we concluded. Yes, oh, a thousand. Yes. Even with bonus, even with bonus episodes of even if you cut the Emma and Clueless Pride and Prejudice, like uh, Jane Austen stuff, you just talk about just Pride and Prejudice. And even if you include like the philosophy bonus episode of Kingdom Hearts and the quiz, I am so certain Pride and Prejudice is longer. There's no way. Anyway, what, enjoy that. What I think can it's I really say? Good. Here's what I will say. I said a bounteous table. <laughs> you did, and it was fantastic. I, I will say this really quick because it's in a different feed. We have another podcast called Be Good and Rewatch It. It's If you go in that feed, that's where the conversations we had last year about The Purge uh, are. We did – I know, right? Uh, we did uh, – Patrick, you and Danielle did Sunshine – not yeah, Sunshine? Yeah, Sunshine and uh, Event Horizon. And Event Horizon, uh, newly relevant Event Horizon as <laughs> we've now seen the inside of a black hole for the first – or inside. Mm. We've, seen the, we've seen the Event Horizon of a black hole uh, for real for the first time today as of this recording. And then Rob has taken us on a journey into the world of Jane uh, Austen by way of Clueless, which is an adaptation of Emma, uh, Pride and Prejudice itself, and then Emma, uh, uh, various uh, adaptations there of um and it's been fantastic like i if you're someone who is like i wish i would have paid a little more attention in my literature class like i think this this is the closest i've come to like feeling like i'm in a really good course where everyone's like done the reading and wants to do a deep close read uh ever like in a long time long 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 time it's fantastic next up we're going to do jordan peele's us um and then in that same feed in a few months once it hits we're going to do evangelion so like Get there now. Start like hit that hit that subscribe button. Be good and rewatch it. Even if you're skipping that stuff right now, even if you're like, ah, I only want to do the horror stuff. I only want to do the sci-fi stuff. I only want to do anime. All that stuff will be in that same feed. So go ahead and subscribe to that. And honestly, really, truly, give the Pride and Prejudice stuff a listen. It's so much fun. Um, uh, I would really appreciate that. That's my spiel. Well, I uh, I hope you'll join us for for. All of that on Pride on uh, on Pride and Prejudice uh, podcast.com. No, uh, on Be Good and Rewatch It and uh, listen and keep up with us here on Waypoint Radio. Uh, but until then, do not give in to astonishment.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So Becky Lynch genuinely hates Ronda Rousey, right? Like, oh, that's I absolutely real. think so. I absolutely think so. I uh, yeah uh-huh. uh huh. Also, like, Ronda Rousey fucking fucked up a spot at the very end. She lifted. That a botch? That's absolutely. There's no. I will never be convinced that wasn't a botch because they haven't turned it into a story yet. Oh really? Yeah. As far as I know, they just dropped that. Wait, what she do? She fucking lifted her. She lifted her her shoulders during the pin. Very clearly, she broke the the three count, but the three count went through. She like uh. instinctively lifted her shoulders off the mat. At one, and then so it was like one breaks the pin, two, three. So it's not a clean win, which like it sucks. It sucks. Uh, I think Becky's yeah. actually come out and said, um, "Yeah, I think I think it has continued to. They're just not going to talk about it. Like it isn't the start of a new storyline. So yeah, it's a complete well. Becky's option. also on record saying like Ronda's a shitty wrestler, right? Like yeah, she basically and she said like she's anyway. soft and she's bad. Yeah." Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Hell yeah. It's very funny. Becky Lynch rules. <laughs> and she has two belts now, and now her nickname is Becky Two Belts, which is a great name. That's for so good. Shit. So that's yeah. my OC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's her. Siblings Day. What? That's what Siblings Day. It is. Siblings Day. You should call your siblings. Just in time for Game of Thrones season mm-hmm. seven. Yeah, there's the joke. <laughs> Eight, oh, thank you. Eight. Is it? All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've lost count. All right. I like this show. 23? It's 24. Fine. 24. I don't like that show as much. Nailed it. 24. Not a big fan. There's like a couple uh, of good seasons. No. Remember yeah. when that show was being cited in yeah. political discourse to discuss mm-hmm. counterterrorism policy? I do. Because like, it was, no, being, it was like cited, being specifically cited by yeah. the Bush administration as like yes. a defense of torture practice. Yes. And also in, like the internally. showrunner is like yeah. a yeah. shitty conservative like – I can't remember. It's been a long time since like the 24 torture discourse. But I – yeah, like the actual showrunner of that uh, bad – but yeah, Do you I remember all like, those great scenes where Jack Bauer was like, "All right, I need to torture this guy." I to fucking loved find, for find a good Abu Nazir, or where the fuck his name is. But first, I need an immunity agreement before <laughs> I torture this guy. I'm not going to find that nuclear bomb until I'm given complete guaranteed immunity from all prosecutions in U.S. courts and foreign courts. And it's like Jack Bauer, you're a hero, sir. Here's your CYA memo. My um, so I went to a uh, twenty when they made the twenty four of the game. Uh, yeah, I was in college and one up sent me to the press event for like in L A. like the celebrity press event, um, and for like a segment on the one up show, and like my last interview. I have like many memorable stories of that from uh, Elisha Cuthbert's publicist deep instructing everyone outside of the the room where you were going in to talk to her. 
she had just gone through like a weird breakup with a hockey player, like very publicly. And it was like, basically, the gist was any motherfuckers bring that up. I will come in there. I will throw wow. you out of the room. Um, and I just, I never interviewed a celebrity on like this level before. And um, when I interviewed, I forget who the actor's name, but Tony Almeida from, from 24. Yeah. Uh, Soul Patch. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the, the, the really the heart of the show, honestly, uh, him and his relationship with Michelle. Um, they, it was like the last interview of the day. They were like super relaxed, like hanging out, like getting ready to go get drinks. And so they were like really relaxed with me. And I found out they were asking because they were like, what the hell is this super young kid <laughs> doing here? I was like, oh, I'm in college. I go to University of Illinois. Tony Almeida went to Illinois State University, mm. which is like just, it's like 40 minutes away. And like this, to explain the relationship between U of I and ISU is to uh, the school you want to go to is U of I. The school that you go to if you don't get into U of I is ISU. And U of I students called ISU, I screwed up. Um, oh, yeah, wow. there we go. And, That's the shit I love. Uh, and I'm explaining this to him before he reveals that he went to ISU and then, like, explain this to me. And I'm just like, so, I mean, he, he, he played it for, he knew he was setting me up. But it was an extremely, extremely funny moment that unfortunately uh, is not on tape. But um, it was, very, was, very, was good. very good. And then we talked about bars at ISU and U of I. Uh, Perfect. Perfect. Anyway. <laughs>